0: welcome to the panel on RNZ National. As always, it is wonderful to have your company here. I'm Wallace Chapman. Uh, we are with Joe McCarroll and David Farrell this afternoon. Uh, and news just and secondary teachers have ratified, overwhelmingly, uh, the settlement of a new collective agreement, so you'll hear more about that uh, on Checkpoint, I am sure, but to this, and we have been, uh, as you can imagine, inundated with the response. We're doing a uh, just a panel um, mood of the nation, I guess you could say. Uh, do you support uh, cell phone bans in school? Yes, no. Why, why not? Text me 2101. Results at four 4.40. But cell phones will be banned from schools if the National Party is elected October. It's become an issue Globally, last month, the UN also released its report, Technology in Education, and found cell phones distracted students and had a negative impact on learning in the 14 countries studied as part of the report. National wants to ban phone use at school to fix declining achievement. Parts of Australia, they've got a school phone ban, so a great way for students to actually concentrate or taking away the capacity for a little personal responsibility. With us is Claire Amos, principal at uh, Albany H- Senior High School, also has a special interest in e-learning and technology within the school sphere. Claire, kia ora, good to have you here. Kia ora, Wallace. So as it stands in New Zealand, each school has their own rules on this. You know, they can ban phones now if they want to. What does your school do, Claire?
1: Um, we do not ban phones. Um, we leave it for our teachers to manage... Um, on a period-by-period period basis, we work alongside our students to help them to manage their own distractions. And, um, you know, we feel like we have the power to ban phones if and when we want to already.
0: Wouldn't it be better if you did, Van, because once they, once kids go into those school gates, they're there to learn to focus, not text mm-hmm. each other.
1: Nonsense. I think um, that this is absolutely the perfect example for a simple solution to a complex problem. And um, in my mind, it's a bit of a non-policy and it's real virtual, virtue um, signalling. This appeals in the simplistic nature of let's shut down these cell phones and kids are going to be engaged. They're not going to be on social media and they're not going to be bullied. What absolute rubbish, you know. These young people can still access all of those platforms through their laptops, through VPNs, through different ways of doing it. We need to work with our young people to learn to manage these devices and manage these distractions. And um, I ultimately think this is a waste of money and resources.
0: If it's such a waste of money and resources, why is the UN saying that they endorse um, cell phones being out of schools because it has a negative impact on the learning of the countries? We are getting feedback here, Claire. for example, <laughs> a, a relief teacher, get rid of them. The schools I relieve in where phones are banned produce greater learning outcomes on every level. Claire Amos.
1: Oh, look, I've looked at the UNESCO report that the National Party cite and the, um, the policy on this. Um, that comment about um, cell phones having the potential to be um, a distraction is one small part of a much greater report that talks about how effective technology um, can be in terms of making learning more inclusive, more engaging. It's about learning to use technology effectively in our schools. We do not need a black and white ban, and and I keep hearing people talking about oh they're doing it in Australia. That is a state by state decision, and that is still just rolling out. Um, ACT, Canberra, Can- Canberra have de- have not embraced this, and they are not um, they are not banning cell phones. Of all the states in Australia, they have the best outcomes for learners and the most qualified young people in Australia. I I think we've got to be really careful of simplistic black and white solutions. Let's
0: go around the panel. Actually, David Farrow, you first on this. Well, look,
2: I I do sympathise with the intent of the ban, (laughs) etc. But what would be interesting to do, and always someone who loves the idea of testing things, would be to actually say ban it in 75% of the schools and not the other 25% and make sure yo, they're, they're all much the same decile if we still use deciles etc and two three yeah. years down the track actually see what the data shows about yeah. are there any differences there etc because that would be really fascinating to actually uh, do that Yeah
1: and and, and I, can, I I can understand that sense of Testing and understanding what the impact and the results are, and I think you're absolutely right. I think the data that we look at is so often cherry picked to, you know, reinforce our beliefs and our values and our and and what have you. I think the great thing about education in New Zealand at present is we can speak to our community, we can look at results in our own school. And we can stipulate whether we want to ban or use technology. Do you know what I'm more concerned about is the digital divide. The young people who are disengaged at the moment are not necessarily disengaged because of their devices. There's a whole lot of our young people who completely disconnected from learning over the course of the lockdowns because they did not have access to technology in their home. They did not have access to learning and support throughout consecutive lockdowns. Heck, I'd be spending the money on closing the digital divide. I wouldn't be spending money on creating new regulations around banning cell phones. Ban make. That would be (laughs)
0: useful. Okay, all right. (laughs) Not an either or, though. Yeah, not an either or. Okay, Joe McCarroll.
3: (laughs) Hey, Claire, I just want to say I completely support what you're saying. I think this is a decision that should be left to teachers who are the ones in school with the kids, who are the ones who know what works and doesn't work and what works in different situations. I think this is an absolute straw man argument that does nothing but add an unnecessary level of enforcement and administration to our overworked teacher workforce, and I think the decision should be left with our teachers.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, well, uh, as you could say, there's uh, a huge range of responses and actually really mixed. So we're going to be doing to know, a panel poll on this uh, yes or no to supporting ban, uh, supporting uh, a cell phone ban uh, in school. And in terms of the enforceability on one here, our school attempts to ban phone use, but it has been impossible to enforce. Uh, if a legal ban is introduced, I would certainly support it. But how can it be policed when teachers are consistently robbed uh, through growing nanny state policies? of any two-disciplined children, except for slapping them with a wet exam paper. Um, The enforceability, I guess that might be an issue, Claire. uh,
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've got to be careful about having a one-size-fits-all policy. I think what is appropriate for us as a senior school isn't necessarily appropriate for a primary school. I think when kids are in a single homeroom, You absolutely can manage this and should manage this for our young people. But as they mature through their teenage years, we've got a real responsibility to support them to self-manage and to be beating ourselves up and losing time and breaking down relationships between students and teachers for the sake of enforcing a cell phone ban. I think you're losing more than you're gaining.
0: Are, Are you giving young students too much credit to say that they can self-manage. That's what teachers are there for, to provide uh, to, to provide guidance, to provide counsel, yeah. to say, actually, you know what, you should get off your blooming, blooming phone and go and play handball.
1: Yep, and that's what we do already, Wallace. We yep. do sit there and we do support them, we do guide them, we do try and get them to think about having time away from their screens. We don't need a government to yeah. stipulate a ban to do that.
2: I think it is worth noting, though, that self-management is a very good aspiration but part of screen time is it is very addictive it engages their brain mm. in a way that's not always healthy and you know, I even see, see this with, with you know, young kids, not not cell phones, but screen time, et cetera. You cetera. Know, the guidelines are keep them under an hour a day. There is something about screen time, whether it's cell phones or TV or tablets, which does yeah. actually just send dopamines almost to their brain and does make it really difficult.
3: That's absolutely true, yeah, David, yeah. but kids aren't at school 24 hours a day. I mean, they're looking at screens at home, you know, so why are we making it up to the teachers to enforce these Well it's rules. down to the
0: parents to give them guidelines, isn't it Claire?
1: Hey, uh, well, you know yeah. I want to actually stop right there Wallace and think about these parents who are disengaged from parenting because they're scrolling too much maybe we need to think about banning cell phones in the home a bit as well <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean yeah, oh, Next level <laughs> <laughs> The panel is going next level yeah. there we have it um, banning, <laughs> banning cell phones in the home after five, that's the yeah. next as topic
1: parents- they're out of
0: hand, I tell you. <laughs> All right, Claire, good to have your perspective. Kia ora, uh, and always a pleasure to have you on. That's Claire Amos, a principal at Albany Senior High School there. Special interest in e learning, saying, look, uh, it's it's actually a bit of a beat up. Uh, not an issue. 17 past for the panel, nonetheless we are con- continuing with the poll and Sam my wonderful producer has the uh, unenviable task of collating those uh, yes or no to banning cell phones in school results at 4.40 17 past for Joe McCarroll David Farrah and we are on the panel is on iHeart on Apple on Spotify it's our beautiful blue backyard as Prime Minister Chris Hipkins said, snapper Kingfish, Kahawai all live together in the Gulf. 23 years ago the country established the Hauraki Gulf as our first marine national park to protect its life. Under big pressure though 57% 57% decline in key fish stocks, 76% decline in colder crayfish, according to a 2020 State of the Gulf report. Well, Labour today introduced a key protection plan covering from 6% to 18% of the Gulf. The protections would include bans on bottom trawling and what's known as Danish seining in five areas. With us is the Hauraki Golf Forum Chief Executive Alex Rogers. Kia ora, Alex
4: Kia ora, Wallace.
0: What's your response to the announcement?
4: Look it's a great step forward and it's long overdue. I mean the gulf's under severe pressure from all sides and um, and if you think about it right now, just 0.3% of the Horeki Gulf is protected. And you can bottom trawl in over 70% of it. So that's a, that's a complete ecological imbalance with how we're treating the Gulf. And what the government has announced today is good. The figures aren't quite as high as, as you quoted there, um, because the government is conflating marine protection and seafloor protection to give right. them that 18%. But nevertheless, we'll be going from about 0.3% to 6% marine protection in the Gulf.
0: We well, all love it, don't we? I mean, those who those who are very familiar with the Haida Gulf, you go out there, you might have a glass of wine on the on, on, on the seafront there, the, the blue waters sparkling, listing the the, the boats sailing by. But underneath, what state is the Gulf in? What is the state of your your mussel beds, your fish stocks?
4: Well, that's been the tragedy over the last few years. We've seen scallops uh, almost wiped off the map, um, thanks to scallop dredging in, in the Gulf. We've seen a real collapse of um, other species, and uh, our seabirds are having to go further and further afield to feed their young. You know, the situation out there is not good. It is a crisis, and it is great, though, finally, to be seeing some action. From our side, we've been producing these state of the Gulf reports exactly for this purpose, uh, to convince politicians that they need to do something about it.
0: A near collapse of scallop bags? That's not a... uh that's not good, is it, Jo? Well,
3: no, it's not. I mean, it makes me wonder, Alex, whether or not, I don't want to, I mean, I'm very supportive of this announcement, but whether or not, how much can the Gulf recover? You know, you look at fish stocks, you look at the seafloor, you look at the biosecurity threat of some of those introduced seaweeds. Are, have we reached a point where we will never recover the, the ecosystem that we once had?
4: Oh it's a great question Joe. One of the things that's amazing about the marine environment is how quickly it can come back and we see little you know examples around the coastline people will be familiar with Goat Island and how beautiful that is. It's amazing what happens when you just leave a bit of it alone. Now on the forum side, what we would like to see is 30% of the Gulf protected. That's what scientists uh, internationally regard as the kind of standard, gold standard of marine protection. And we do want to see uh, seafloor damaging fishing methods moved out of the marine park entirely. I mean, as Wallace said in the opening, this is our national park of the sea. We wouldn't do that in Fiordland, would we?
2: David. Well, I was going to ask what percentage do you think would be appropriate because 6% does sound very, very modest. Having considered, look, it's definitely a step in the right direction. I know where um, I recall Nikki Kay doing a lot of behind the scenes work on this probably 10, 12 years ago, etc. So, you know, it's it's been a long time coming getting further protections there. Um, Where to from now would be my question it's obviously not enough 6%. Uh, What's the next step to be able to go further?
4: Oh, absolutely, David. And uh, this is just an intention at this stage in terms of that marine protection because what they've got to do now is introduce legislation and that legislation has got to be passed and the PM said this morning that they'd be aiming to do that next year. Well, there's an election first, and we're going to have to see what happens there. But from our side, we've been talking right across the House, and it is good that we've reached a point where there is real ambition here. We know the public's with us. We polled recently on this. More than 70% of people want to see more marine protection. They want, you know, these damaging fishing methods out of the Gulf. And um, and so we are just going to continue to encourage as much ambition here as possible, because the future of the health of the Gulf and the you know the prosperity of of the Auckland and Waikato regions depends on it.
0: Are Alex, you, sorry. Oh, sorry, David. Oh, Joe jo first, and then back um, to you,
3: David. Alex, I was just um, talking the other day with um, Jack Hobbs, who's the manager at Auckland Botanic Gardens, a very great plantsman, and we we're talking about seagrass and the very important role it can play in carbon sequestration. Um, and he was telling me that that not only obviously it's absolutely destroyed by bottom trawling, but it's very damaged by anchors and mooring. I mean, would you speaking of ambition, would you look to a future where anchoring and mooring in the Gulf was restricted or banned?
4: You've seen a really interesting example of that lately in Okahu Bay, which is in central Auckland. Manafina has worked with council to remove anchorages out of that bay. And they've also restored a muscle bed in that bay. And really, you know, the life force or the Modi has, has returned really quickly to to Okahu Bay with that. Um, so, look, there are all sorts of measures you could look at. Uh, what we really need to do now is lock these ones in. This is a kind of a foundational base that the Gulf can use to help recover, but then it is going to need a bit of help as well. As you say, there are amazing things about the marine environment. Its ability to sequester carbon is one of them. And, um, you know, we did a valuation of the Gulf recently that showed it is worth $100 billion to this country. Imagine what it would be worth if it was restored.
0: David?
2: I'm wondering if you could let us know the view with local iwi towards greater protection because I know as a long time fan of the Kermadix proposal, the largest marine reserve in the world I think it would be, fell apart because at the end you couldn't get agreement with iwi there. Um, I'm optimistic but really keen to get reassurance that with legislation that has to go through the House, are there any concerns in terms of whether we've got the relationship right with local iwi on this?
4: Yeah, great question. I think we have. Uh, It's taken 10 years so it has taken a lot of hard conversations to get it right but what the mechanism that the government is going to use or is proposing to use is that there'll be biodiversity targets set for each of these new marine protected areas. And there may be customary allowances within those, but only as long as they're meeting that biodiversity target. So that will allow local iwi to still maintain their customary connection to the area. They might, for example, get kaimwana for a tangihanga. Um, but uh, there's, you know, there's a fine balance on all those things, and that seems to be where it's landed after a 10-year slog.
0: I just want to get back to the scallops, actually, uh, there, Alex. Um, so that's true, you, the, the, you, can't, you can't get scallops in the Gulf anymore?
4: No, they, they collapsed to a point where uh, it might have been fatal um, to keep going. And so the government did the right thing uh, after some urging, eventually closing the entire scallop fishery in the Gulf. That now means, Wallace, that there are no open scallop fisheries in the country. You know, that's a, that's a travesty and it's a reflection no, of the fact that those have been mismanaged.
0: All right, good to have you on the program, Alex Kiona. That's Hodoki uh, Golf Form Chief Executive Alex Rogers there. Uh, loving your company this afternoon. Thank you so much for uh, all your feedback and just a bit on that. Chris in Christchurch says, How refreshing to hear the intelligent and informed response from your guest, Claire. What about parental support and role modelling. Uh, Another one here, though, in my experience as a full-time teacher, now a relief teacher, senior management needs to back teachers. I have been told to F off by Year 7 and 8 students when asking them to put their phones away. Your guest needs to really find out what is happening in classes. She sounds well out of touch. Another one, get rid of the phones, relief teacher here. Another one, ban them. I'm a school teacher no matter the training. We get all sorts of discipline issues due to misuse, relationship breakdowns especially. Um, No to banning until research and education authorities support this approach. No such evidence so far. But on a completely different note, I want to get to this. Do you, on occasion... Like to dine alone. Well, you are out of luck if you're in Barcelona, where restaurants are banning solo diners. A group of Spanish restaurateurs in Barcelona have initiated banning patrons from booking tables for one, arguing... It's bad for business, and an outdoor table is valuable real estate, they say. Giving one to a lone diner does not make business sense, they say, when there are tables of tourists waiting to fill them. It's a hot topic on Spanish social media. Given how hard up the industry is here, should solo dining be banned or restricted in this country? Around the panel on this, Joe McCarroll, would you support it?
3: Uh, I I wouldn't support it. I like eating alone. I think it's a legitimate thing to want to do. Um, I where would you draw the line? I mean, would you ban people who just wanted an entree? Would you ban people who well, were yes. drinking alcohol? Yes, I would. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you would, wouldn't you? Uh,
3: well, no. I mean, I think Hospo is very hard pressed at the moment, and that's a uni- that's an international problem. And I'm very supportive of Hospo, but I think that.
0: Is... But you are taking up real estate, though, aren't you? If you go in there and just order. A plate of chips, and yeah, I and and, and, a, and a six of a six of oysters. But I might and go in it. with
3: six of my friends, and we might just say, "Well, we're just going to split a salad. We'll have forks for six, and unlikely. we'll fill up on that's water." Unlikely, isn't it? well, it is to be fair with my friends, but um, but no, I don't. I don't support it. I'd be surprised if it was happening, if it was happening in a widespread way. Um, I think if I, I would rather they banned people taking photographs of food than solo diners. <laughs> OK,
0: right. then, David, what about this then? A 45-minute cap on solo tables uh, is another thing that is being introduced. Is that fair enough? You go to you go to your favourite eatery in Wellington by yourself and they say, Sorry, David, uh, we, we know who you are. Uh, but <laughs> having said that, you can't be here for more than 45 minutes.
2: Well, look, sometimes actually you do turn up to places and they say, Look, we can squeeze you in as long as you've got Look, cafe owners, restaurant owners can set their own rules. As someone who eats out by myself quite a lot when I'm travelling around the country, um, I'd be really peeved off because, you know, I need to eat, um, and Uber eats, you know, in the hotel room, loses the appeal after a while. But I think the far bigger issue for for restaurants and cafes would be more the people who use them as mobile offices, where they come in at 10 o'clock in the morning, get one coffee, and spend four hours working there, etc., um so I think with everything the owners just have to work out uh what works for them but you know if you don't want to take take someone's money for 40 50 dollars worth of food you know that's their
3: call you could get rid of the mobile office people by banning phone use in cafes.
0: Yes. Is that <laughs> – uh, someone says yes, ban them. Um, I mean, one diner in Barcelona has said they were mistakenly seated at a table for two, only for the waiter to realise nobody was coming and they were asked to leave. So around the panel, it's kind of uh, unfair that solo dining does have a place.
3: Oh, 100% it does. And I'm sure there'd be a lot really? of restaurants who'd be happy to take your money. Um, And there's workarounds. It's not like you have to ban them. You could have shared tables. You could have high stools, you know, bench seating. There'd be a lot of ways you'd solve that that would be a more intelligent way that would allow you to take the business that was on offer there.
0: Yeah. Very good. You're on the panel on RNZ Nationally. It's a very good question. Someone says, what about when you are away out of town for work and uh, need to eat? Well, you can sit at the bar, so maybe just the bar.
3: That's, yeah, uh, you, just you, I mean, you yeah. know, you go to restaurants all the time and they say you've got a two-hour sitting or, you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's normal. All
0: right, in about uh, five, five, six minutes, we'll give you the results of um, our, um, our, our, our our, mood of the nation this afternoon on uh, banning cell phones in school. I asked you, um, would you support that? Yes or no? Why or why not? Loving your company today. Text me 2101. Uh, email the panel at rnz.co.nz.